for her death. But in that bathroom, she fell to her knees and she heard a voice in her heart say, I want you to worship me. She knew enough about the God of the Bible to believe that it was him because she had heard that the God of the Bible was a personal God. And this started for her a four-year journey of finding out who Jesus is and counting the costs of what it would take to follow Jesus. She knew that she would lose her friends. She knew that there were family members who would reject her. She knew that she would lose really her entire community if she became a Christian. But according to Voice of the Martyrs, as she studied the Bible and attended church, Aisha discovered that Jesus Christ had already accomplished everything necessary for her salvation on the cross. She simply needed to place her faith in his righteousness to gain freedom from the curse of the law. Soon, Aisha was ready to tell her husband about her new faith. But Aisha's husband rejected her faith, took her to Sharia court, where he sought to divorce her and have the children removed from her care. This is a court where Islamic law would be enforced. But the case never made it to that court because her new pastor and her new church friends advocated for her to be heard in a magistrate court, a civil court. And the judge in that court ruled that Aisha must recant the Christian faith or she must divorce her husband. And she chose Christ. And so she got custody of her son, but her daughter went with the husband. However, in God's sovereignty, sometime later, her daughter is at school, meets some Christians. They lead her to Christ. She goes home and tells her dad, and her dad looks at the daughter and says, If you are a Christian, then you leave my house or I will kill you. Aisha and her family are now safe, praise God, living in a non-Muslim community, and at 43 years old, she is going to seminary. Her parents do not speak to her. They have shunned her for leaving Islam. Her ex-husband and her former community still hunt her and her family. Voice of the Martyr says, Aisha lives with the stress of knowing that her ex-husband and his family are still searching for her to kill her. She receives regular text messages exhorting her to return to Islam or threatening to kill her. Yet despite the difficulties and uncertainty, she has no regrets. This is what persecution looks like. This morning we're going to look at a passage that Aisha and her children would certainly be able to identify with. In fact, of the reported 2.6 billion Christians that live on the earth today, 330 million of them are living with high levels of persecution in their lives, high levels of discrimination in their lives due to their Christian faith. And they could all identify with this passage. But we identify with it as well, because as we said last week, godliness begets persecution, begets opposition. Anybody who's ever been made an outcast because they stood for Christ. Anyone who's ever been on the receiving end of injustice due to their biblical convictions. Anyone who's ever been reviled for Christ's sake understands the bitter flavor that the church is made to drink in Acts 8. But they also understand that at the bottom of that cup there is sugar and sweetness. That's what we're going to see this morning. That a passage that begins with an execution ends with exuberance. 
A passage that begins with scattering ends with salvation. A passage that begins with injustice ends with inexpressible joy. And so let's read the text, and in it we're going to see three points, three observations. One, persecution is provoked by obedience. Two, we'll see that persecution is purposed by God. And lastly, we will see persecution is a pathway to joy. Acts 8, starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Father, You love your people, and yet, God, you use the suffering of your people for your purposes. This world, when they come against the church, and Satan, when he comes against the church, they think they're winning, but they don't understand that you have everything in its perfect place. They don't understand that you are ruling, and that you are reigning, and you are arranging, and you are governing. And that in your sovereign wisdom, you see to it that the persecution of your people that you love would lead to more people loving you, more people being saved, uh, more people groups hearing about the gospel. What the world doesn't understand, Lord, is that when they scatter us, we take the gospel with us. What the world doesn't understand is that you have made promises to the persecuted, promises of reward promises of comfort, promises of care, and promises that the persecution is not wasted. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning we see persecution the way that you see it, that we would have a worldview when it comes to our suffering that would line up with the Bible. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave here all the more compelled to go and tell And to be proclaimers of the one true gospel. Knowing that if we preach and people repent, hallelujah. If we preach and a seed is planted that will come to bear fruit later, hallelujah. And if we preach and we are persecuted, hallelujah. Because of the promises that you make to those who suffer for your name. So, Lord, be with us. Help us to have a clear understanding of your word. I pray that you would give me the words to say pray it be an instrument for you. I pray that our hearts, Lord, would be yielded to how you have revealed yourself in the Bible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage starts with Saul approving of our brother Stephen's death. We saw Stephen, the first Christian martyr, die last week. As Stephen's murderers removed their cloaks, they laid them at the feet of Saul. And what this shows is Saul's involvement 
in Stephen's death. It's reemphasized by Luke in chapter 8, verse 1. Saul has his hands in the business of persecution. In verse 3, chapter 8, Saul is ravaging the church. The Greek verb that translates to ravaging is lameno, and it literally means to injure or to do harm. Paul is wanting to inflict damage on the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to see the church suffer. And in verse 3, you see how he is ravaging the church. He's going from house to house, and he's dragging off men and women, and he is committing them to prison. Greek speakers in the first century use that same word there that refers to dragging off the men and women. They would use that same word to describe fishermen dragging in nets full of fish from the shore after a really good day on the waters. It's a brutal picture. A man seeking to rip apart Jesus' church and carry the arrested bodies of the members off to jail like loads of fish. To understand Saul's hatred of the church, you've got to understand who he is. He's born around the same time that Jesus is born, we think. A Jewish man from Asia Minor in the city of Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. His dad was a Roman citizen, something that was probably granted to him because he had done something significant for the empire. And because his dad was a Roman citizen, Saul is is born as a free man. He would have inherited that Roman citizenship from his father. Growing up in Tarsus, he would have grown up in comfort. Tarsus was a luxurious city. The largest university in the world was in that city. R.C. Sproul describes Tarsus as a cosmopolitan city. It was on a major trade route. It was a place where merchants and scholars and intellectuals and travelers from all over the world coalesced. Think Paris, right? And so Saul growing up there would have been a cultured young man. He likely would have been learning the trade of his father. He would have eyed maybe becoming a tent maker. It's quite possible that's what his father was. We know that that that. Saul would have those skills later on as the Apostle Paul, and it would serve him so he could be a bivocational church planter. The conventional route would have been for him to take his father's path, to become a merchant, but as he turned 13 years old, as he came of age, it was clear that he was brilliant, and so he was sent off to Jerusalem to study under the most respected rabbi of his day, the Rabbi Gamaliel. We met Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. Saul spent seven years under Gamaliel, earning the equivalent of two doctorates in theology. Some historians say that by the age of 21, Saul of Tarsus was the most educated Jewish man in all of Jerusalem. But his heart was depraved. And it was far from God. His head was a sponge for scriptural knowledge. But a knowledgeable head combined with a sinful and dead heart is a dangerous thing. Zeal becomes easily misdirected because the evil heart warps the knowledge of the head. In Acts 22, Paul describes his upbringing and he connects this misdirected zeal for God and his awful persecution of the church. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. 
but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, talking about the church, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness." From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. In Philippians 3, Paul shares that if he wanted to boast in his flesh, he had more reason to do it than anybody else. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You can see here that just having a head full of knowledge doesn't cut it. If you come to church and all you do is just learn with your head and it never gets to your heart, That's not good enough, and in fact, it's dangerous. Thomas Watson says in the book that we're about to start reading with the men on Tuesday mornings, The Godly Man's Picture, he says, knowledge of the head with a dead heart, that's like a torch in a dead man's hand. It's light that's not being used. Why was Saul doing all of this? Because he was raised to do it from a young pup. From the moment of reaching his manhood, he is trained in heart and mind to be a legalist. And he is vicious towards those who can't get in line. All those Pharisees that Jesus battled in his earthly ministry, all those Pharisees harassing the apostles in chapters 4 and 5 of Acts, Saul was going to surpass them all. He was the next Gamaliel. Gamaliel is described as being held in honor by all the people. He was going to be the next one to be held in honor by all the people. But he had a streak of vicious zeal that made him much more dangerous than the old rabbi who had taught him. It was a perfect cocktail for a persecutor. Young, talented, brilliant, and brutal. Question is, why did Saul target Stephen? Why did Saul target these other men and women? Drag them out of their homes? And the answer is, they were godly. They were godly, obedient proclaimers of the truth. And this is what the world does to godly, obedient proclaimers of the truth. Even the religious world, they persecute them. So number one this morning, if you're taking notes, persecution is provoked by obedience. We see this in these first three verses. Persecution is provoked by obedience. Stephen was full of the Spirit, Stephen was full of faith. He was filled with wisdom, and he stood before the council that was charging him with blasphemy, and he gave them a history lesson. And in that history lesson, Stephen reminded them of Israel's long-storied history of rejecting the Word of God and rejecting the prophets of God, and they did that all the way down the line until they rejected the Messiah himself. In Acts 7.52 The word says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And those words from Stephen, 
that obedience from Stephen, that devotion from Stephen that saw him not back down in the face of this opposition, it got him killed. Because people like Saul, dead in their sin, mistook their unlawful murdering for zealous law-keeping. They were so far from God, they thought they were serving God by killing his servant Stephen, just as they thought they were serving God by killing his son. And all the prophets who came before him. In verse 2, you see there are these devout men who will not let Stephen's body rot outside the city. To leave a body without a burial in Jewish culture was to treat a person like an animal. It's really not different from us today. If a deer gets hit by the car, it will lay there for a while, right? might be there for 24, 48 hours. VDOT will come around and pick it up after it's nice and stiff. We don't do that with people for good reason. If tragically someone is hit by a car, the police are there, the first responders are there, and that situation is taken up and is cleaned up, and they're going to stop traffic, everything must halt. we got a person here. Because even if our culture wants to deny it, they recognize the difference between a deer and a person. We know that a person is made in the image of God deep down, even if we try to suppress that knowledge and act like there really isn't much of a difference between a deer and a person or a monkey and a person. These devoted men are absolutely determined that their brother will be buried. He will not be left for the birds. He will be mourned properly. He is their family. And their devotion is exactly the sort of God-honoring faith that Saul wants to snuff out. Those devoted men are just the sort of prisoners that he is looking to acquire. And all of this reminds us Ironically, of what this very man, Saul, the Apostle Paul, would write to his son in the faith, Timothy, long after his conversion, he would say to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So are you devoted? Church, are you devoted? Well, then gird your loins. For resistance is going to come. Are you obedient? Well, if you're obedient, then be prepared because obedience provokes persecution. In fact, the expectation of persecution as a result to obedience is a consistent feature in the New Testament. Here's Jesus speaking just hours before his arrest. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. They persecuted Jesus before us. Jesus says, a servant is not greater than the master. You can expect the same treatment as I got. Galatians 4.29 But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. The world, which is according to the flesh, always persecutes God's children who are born according to the Spirit. This is the way it was in the time of Isaac and the patriarchs. 
This is the way it is now. And then again, the converted Saul of Tarsus, our brother, the Apostle Paul, tells those that he pastors not to be surprised with the persecuting affliction that comes. He writes to Thessalonica and he says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Devoted obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ brings about persecution during the age of tribulation. It comes in varying degrees, but it comes. Like gravity, like tax season, like death itself. This is just the way that things work. Now you might say, why is it this way? Why would God allow Aisha to go through everything that she went through, to have to uproot her family, to have to move? Why would God allow Saul to drag saints off into prison? And here's the answer. It is God's purpose to glorify himself through the steadfastness of a suffering church. I want to say that again because it's so important for us to understand this, that it is God's purpose to glorify himself through the steadfastness of a suffering church. Number two, persecution is purposed by God. And we see this in verses four and five. In verse four, we have a scattering. This is one of the ways that God glorifies himself through a suffering church. By using persecution to scatter his sheep. Because when the sheep are scattered, they take the treasure of the gospel that they hold within them to whatever place the persecution pushes them to. We see this in verse 4. Those that are scattered by the persecution go about doing what? Preaching the word. They're not going to stop preaching the word. Wherever they go, they're going to keep preaching the word. They take the light with them. And really, the scattering should not come as a surprise, because what did Jesus tell the apostles just before his ascension? His final commission to them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He told them that the kingdom is going to advance. It's going to break through geographical boundaries. It's going to break out of Jerusalem. It's going to break out of Judea. It's going to break out of Samaria. It's going to go to the end of the earth. Now, it wasn't evident in that commission that the scattering would come about by persecution, but we can see here this is God's plan. That God will take the tricks of Satan and the conspiracies of man to bring about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That he allows the affliction of the church for the advance of the church. Martin Luther, talking about this, said the church is like manure. If you let it sit there and do nothing, it's going to start to stink. But if you spread it out, it's going to produce fruit. The Lord Jesus had no intention of his church stagnating in Jerusalem. This is not some little local religion. 
It was always the plan of God to see kingdom fruit through the scattering of his persecuted church throughout the world. And this scattering here is an important moment in redemption history. Because Jerusalem, the king city in the heart of Israel, is no longer the epicenter of worship and witness. Listen to Mark's account of Jesus' words and actions in Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Reminder to us of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself to come and subject himself to hunger. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. I had an ethics professor at VCU say that Jesus is anti-environment because he cursed the fig tree. That's the sort of ridiculous nonsensical, illogical, and uneducated teaching about the Bible that you will hear in secular universities. Unbelievable. I had to raise my hand on that one, trust me. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed has withered. Sandwiched in between this business about the fig tree being cursed and then withering is Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. And this is not an accident. There is a connection between these events. Jesus curses a fig tree that cannot bear fruit out of season. Why? Well, with the connection to Jerusalem and the temple, it certainly seems he's sending a message. A message that goes beyond this cursed fig tree itself. And the message would be, the fruit of worship has no season. It should always be coming out of the lives of God's people. It should always be coming out of the lives of the true Israel. And in the cursing of the tree, combined with the cleansing of the temple, it's as if Jesus is saying the fruitless worship that takes place in this temple is done. And in fact, that temple would be destroyed. One generation later in 70 A.D., gone. God judged Jerusalem, and that judgment was most evident in the destruction of that temple and Him putting an end to the hollow worship that was taking place there, the den of thieves worship, and those who were encouraging it. And so now as we go into the new covenant, Jerusalem is no longer the outpost that we look to as the center of worship. We don't make pilgrimages there. You might go, you might do the sightseeing, and and, and you might do the Holy Land tours and all of that, but you don't hear pastors, you shouldn't, standing in pulpits saying, every Christian must make their pilgrimage. We do not remember the Lord through feasts there. No, we remember the Lord through feasts here, as we just have done. 
We do not count that city or any building in that city as the place where God meets with His people. Instead, what you see in Acts and through the rest of the New Testament is that the local church is now the epicenter of worship. The local church is the place that we make pilgrimage to. We gather together each week on the Lord's Day, and then our church also gathers at different times. The local church is the place where we feast together at the Lord's Supper table. The local church is the people that God calls His own. The temple He dwells in is the contrite hearts and members of the local church. And together we all look to the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem, recognizing we have no permanent address here. You see Paul expressing this in Ephesians 2, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So where does God dwell? Not on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, in the people of the church. We are the temple of the Lord. And so the Lord, desiring not just to dwell in the hearts of Jewish people, but also purposing to graft in Gentiles into the promise, scatters Philip to Samaria. Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. And that made full-blooded Jewish people have absolute hatred toward them. Most Jewish people wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They looked at the Samaritans as unfaithful people with tainted blood. Half-breeds. Dogs. These are the sort of words they used about Samaritans. Samaritans lived near the former capital of the northern kingdom, and during the Babylonian exile, their ancestors settled in that region. And even after the Jewish people came home, they stayed up north and developed their own customs. They had their own edition of the Torah. They viewed Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, as the place of worship. And so they were hated by many Jews, but not Jesus. Jesus Christ loved Samaritans, definitively. It was clear in what he did and in what he said. In John 4, it was the will of Jesus to pass through Samaria. And if it was the will of Jesus, we know it was the will of the Father. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And upon arrival, he speaks to a Samaritan woman at the well. Tells her of a place, uh, or of a time that is coming when Jerusalem nor Gerizim would be the place of worship. It's right in line with what we saw in the fig tree. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Clearly, the Lord Jesus longs to be worshipped not just by Jewish people, but by Samaritans and by anybody who would worship in spirit and truth. Then we have Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan where he does something that no other rabbi would have dared to do. He uses the Samaritan as an example of true neighborly love. Luke 10, 33. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. When Jesus gets to the end of that parable, he asks the lawyer who questioned him, which one of these guys in the story is a neighbor? Is it the priest who walked by the man and left him for dead? Is it the Levite who walked by the man and left him for dead? Or is it the Samaritan? And the lawyer could not even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Instead, he just says, the one who showed him mercy. That lawyer stands in contrast to Jesus, who wants to love across sociological and racial and cultural boundaries. Gospel breaks through all of that. The kingdom breaks through all of that. Some Samaritans love Jesus too. If you recall in Luke 17, after he heals ten lepers, the only one who comes back to thank him is who? A Samaritan. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And as we get to Acts 8, And the church is scattered, just as Jesus promised. The gospel goes to the Samaritans. Philip, one of those deacon prototypes, one of the seven, chosen to handle the widow controversy in Acts 6, goes to escape Saul's murderous threats, runs to Samaria. And what happens is a light bearer is scattered into a new region, And as a light bearer is scattered into a new region, they don't leave the light behind, they take the light with them. And so as Philip goes to Samaria, the good news of Jesus Christ is in his heart and is on his tongue. We see this in our own Baptist history. We talk about religious freedom in our nation, but in the days of the colonies, it was not so free for our Baptist brothers and sisters. They would not baptize their babies. They would not submit to the Church of England, and they practiced congregationalism outside of the crown's authority. They would actually hold church meetings without the authority of the Church of England. And so as a result, men like Obadiah Holmes were persecuted. Obadiah was a Baptist in Boston who was put in jail for holding services in somebody's house and for preaching against infant baptism. And there was a bale of 30 pounds placed on his head, which was quite a sum of money. And so some of his friends said, we got to get Obadiah out of jail. They started collecting money to get him out of jail. And Obadiah Holmes said, look, I'm in jail for reasons that are unjust. I haven't committed any crime here. It's not wrong to be holding church services and be preaching good doctrine. I've committed no crime. No bail should be paid. He said, if you're my friend, you will not give an ounce of money to these people and so they left him in jail his friend said well we're his friend we got to do what he said so they just left him in jail and he sat there and he sat there and eventually the there was a public outcry because people were like hey wait a second isn't this what we left this doesn't seem right this guy's just sitting there in jail and so the anglicans were like we got to do something so they took obadiah Holmes into boston commons and they tied him up And they lashed him 30 times with a three-cord whip and then let him go. And Obadiah Holmes was hardcore. You can see the picture. I love his face as they're removing his garments. Like, go ahead. Across the Atlantic, he got a letter from John Spilsbury and William Kiffin, who were two foundational Baptists in the 17th century. And they expressed concern for his suffering. And Obadiah Holmes wrote back and said, Don't worry about me, my brothers. 
The presence of God was so manifested around me, it was as if they whipped me with the stems of roses. But you know what that persecution did? It caused the Baptists to leave Massachusetts and to head south to Rhode Island and to Pennsylvania and all the way down to Charleston, South Carolina. Persecution scattered the sheep and they took the gospel and their good Baptist doctrine and polity with them. I think it's worth us to stop and to ask, are we up for this? Are we willing to be bold to the point of being scattered? If we were scattered, would we view it as providential and rejoice in it? If you got sent to Samaria, would you see it as a mission field or would you see it as a miserable assignment? Let me put it in our context as election season approaches. My politically conservative friends, if God scattered you to San Francisco, would you writhe or would you witness? Would you love the people there or would you despise them for their political ideologies? If you're politically liberal, don't think you're getting away. If God scattered you to a holler in some rural area full of MAGA hat wearing folks, would you be like Jonah running from Nineveh or would you be like Jesus who had to go through Samaria? Would you love the people there or would you despise them because of their political ideologies? See, the world and 24-hour news TV and social media has created boundaries in society and culture and divided people up. And what most people do is they go into these little echo chambers and the only people they really ever hear from are people that agree with them. And then they will use the boundaries created by society and culture as acceptable excuses to say, I won't go witness to those people. I won't take the gospel to those people. And that is an unacceptable excuse. It's no excuse at all. It's sinful talk. If God in his infinite wisdom spends the next 100 years scattering the American church in order to push us to parts of the mission field we just don't want to go to, will we say, your kingdom come and your will be done? Are we ready for this? Because it may come sooner than we think. If not in our generation, it may come for the generation of our children. We ready to meet underground, outside of authority, risking it for the sake of the kingdom? Let's finish up by looking at verses 6 through 8, because I want you to see that girding our loins, as I said, which is what the Lord said to Job after he was about, or before he's about to question him, says, gird your loins, Job. And then he just begins to question him. So if we're, if we're going to gird our loins for, for persecution, I want you to see that there is joy that is to come for those who suffer for the name of Christ. This isn't all doom and gloom, not at all. Look at verses 6 through 8. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is amazing. It's amazing. Philip has an incredible amount of favor 
He goes to speak to the people, and they just listen to him with one accord. He, he must have thought, man, they're, they're all really taking this in here. This is awesome. And you can only attribute that to the grace of God and, and also, I would have to say, the work the Lord Jesus had done in the region. He speaks and he acts with authority. He's doing signs and wonders, which authenticates the gospel that he's preaching. And it's clear to the Samaritans that he must be from the Lord because his words are packed with the divine power of the Holy Spirit and his works are so magnificent, only God could be behind them. He's casting out demons here. He's healing the paralyzed and the lame. It's very similar to the work we saw Stephen doing in Acts 6 before his arrest. By the way, I said this last week, I'll say it again. God always has another man in the wings. always has another man ready to step up. Stephen goes down, here's Philip. As Wallace Tucker, a charter member of this church, used to say, one monkey doesn't stop the show. Stephen was a great man. God had Philip ready to go and to carry on the work. Notice that Luke records there was much joy in that city. Joy all around. Joy from those who are being ministered to. But you also have to imagine joy from Philip because he's being obedient. He's being used by God. There, there are few things in this world that can give you just the, the, the feeling of happiness, the buzz of obedience, than going and just doing what the Lord Jesus says. Just knowing you were obedient and faithful to the Lord Jesus, especially when you do it in a situation where you kind of had to be bold. You had to step out of your comfort zone, right? You had to step out of the box and say, all right, here we go. I, I, this doesn't seem like something I should do or that I would normally do. Uh, it does seem like something you should do if you're being obedient, right? But this doesn't feel like something I would normally do, Lord. It's going to have to be you. And you go and do it. And even if you get rejected, right, there, there are a few things that just make your heart sore as a Christian than knowing, man, I took a bold step of faith for Jesus. I did what He wanted me to do. And He used me. And He was with me. And so certainly Philip would have been joyful. There's joy all around. This is really incredible considering how we started, right? You had Saul dragging Christians off to prison like fish in a net. Now we have joy. Do you see how good God is to use the persecution and the scattering of His church for the glory of His name? Do you see how His purposes and His decrees written from the beginning of time are playing out? How God and His purposes are not thwarted by the sin of man, but He uses even the sin of man to glorify Himself in His all-wise plan? Do you see how His suffering or, or the suffering of his saints, it's ultimately for their joy and also for the joy of unbelievers in the world who will come to him and repent. And so number three, persecution is a pathway to joy. We shouldn't be surprised by any of this. The Bible is packed. It's packed with promises for the persecuted. Promises that show how God is for the joy of his people to the glory of his name. I just want us to consider some texts as we close. We'll start with the Beatitudes. And we will listen to this promise for the persecuted from King Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, their inheritance is the kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we in our lives show God through our obedience that we value Him and His gospel over everything else in this world to the point that we will willingly suffer for the sake of proclaiming, He promises the inheritance and the world to come is ours. Not because we've earned it by suffering persecution. No, God saves us by grace, not by works. But grace-saved people are grace-preaching people, whatever the cost may be. Mark 10, 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And, and so Aisha whose parents won't speak to her, who lost the nuclear family that she once had and lost the community and the friends that she had. Now she'll get it back and more in the age to come. William Tyndale, who left his homeland of England knowing he would not be able to return for the sake of translating the Bible into the English language for the people of England. He's going to get it all back in the age to come. John Rogers, who walked by, we saw last week, his son that he had never met, nursing at his wife's breast, on his way to be burned at the stake, will get it all back in the age to come. Whatever we lose for Christ in this age, we gain in Him and more in the age to come. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. We've talked about the age to come. What about in the here and now? But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In the here and now, like Paul, we can be content in tribulation and in persecution because God's grace is sufficient His power is made perfect in our weakness. He will provide the daily grace for the daily persecution. The daily grace for the daily affliction. He does not abandon us in our suffering. 1 Peter 4, 12-14 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You're sharing in the suffering of Christ as you are persecuted, and if you suffer with Him, you will reign with Him. And you will be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for His sake, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests upon you. Spirit of God helps you endure. 
These are amazing promises. Reward in heaven, a hundredfold in the age to come, sufficient grace and perfect power in the here and now, sharing in His suffering, reigning with Him later, Spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. We don't need to fear persecution. We don't need to back off a proclamation because we are scared of how people may react to us or may reject us or may revile us or insult us. We don't live in a nation right now where it's likely that we will be scattered, but even if we are scattered, even if we are unsettled, even if temporary peace and temporary rest is taken from us, we don't need to fear it. When I was in college, I joined the Richmond Biblical Evangelism team. And they were some of the most serious men of God I've ever been around. We would go out on Friday nights and preach the gospel in downtown Richmond. We would pray for 90 minutes. I remember the first time I showed up at that prayer meeting, and we were about 20 minutes in. I was like, we're going to pray for 70 more minutes? Oh my gosh. I love you, Lord, but I'm struggling to focus here. Those were serious men of God. In a lot of ways, I felt like I really started to experience what prayer was for the first time getting around those brothers. And then we would go out and we would do three hours of evangelism. And the way we would do it is one of us would open air preach up on a step stool. And as people drew near to see, well, what's going on over here? What's this guy saying? The rest of us would engage with them, start to talk to them. We did see some converted. We experienced God's providential hand. I remember one night I shared the gospel with a guy for about 15 minutes and then I introduced myself finally at the end as we were about to part. I said, man, I never told you my name. I'm Michael Howard. He went, get out of here. I'm Michael Howard. I said, come on, man. You got to trust in Jesus. I mean, he sent you a guy with your name. But every now and then there was persecution. One night my friend Rob was open air preaching at an art festival in the fan in Richmond. And just in the middle of talking, he got hit in the face with an egg. And then another came. And then another came. Somebody had gone and bought eggs to throw at Rob. Must have walked down to the local market. And they began to pelt him with all 12 at point-blank range. And Rob never flinched. He just kept preaching with his wife, Lindsay, standing there watching. And I remember thinking, Rob is amazing. How can he just keep going? He's not even addressing it. That's who my friend Rob was and who my friend Rob is. I haven't seen him and talked to him in a long time, but he's an amazing man of God. He would go to some of the most drug-ridden bars in Richmond and sing Jesus songs at open mics. Bold brother. And I used to think Rob was an elite-level evangelist. But now I just think Rob figured out the same thing Aisha figured out and Obadiah Holmes figured out that Peter and Paul and Philip figured out. It's that Jesus is worth more than everything. There is nothing, including our own safety, that comes before obedience to Him. For He is King Jesus. And the sirs and the dames that serve in His holy court have declared that we've been bought with a price and our lives are not our own. And so we must live like that is true. Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness to the suffering saints of the church. Lord, few of us have had to suffer anything like what Obadiah Holmes suffered. Few of us have had to suffer anything like what 
Stephen suffered. Few of us have suffered the way that Philip did, being chased out from his home, having to go to a new region. We don't know much of this, and yet, God, we're so hesitant to even invite our co-workers or our friends to church. Have the low stakes, seemingly low stakes in our country because there's not these rules and regulations lulled us into sleep? Lord, the fact that we live in a land of religious light should just be all the more reason for us to be bold, knowing that there's even less of a chance that we would suffer in the way that Aisha does. So, whatever reason, Lord, whatever reason, be it fear, be it prejudice, be it a lack of confidence in ourselves, whatever reason that we don't proclaim, I, I pray we would crucify it in our hearts because proclamation is obedience. And yes, if we live a godly life, we will experience persecution on some level. It may not look like what Aisha experiences, but we'll experience it on some level. We don't need to be afraid of that, God. You're with us and you promise reward for those who are willing to be reviled for your name's sake. We don't need to go seeking it out. We just need to live godly and live obedient. Live boldly doing what you lead us to do every single day, what you have called us to in your word every single day, we'll, we'll feel it. It will come. And so, Lord, don't let us back down. Don't let us shrink back. Because there's joy in this. Satan wants to rob us from the joy of obedience. Satan wants to rob us from the joy of, of, of bold faithfulness. I pray that that barking dog would not be able to rob us of this joy. And that as we are obedient as a church and as individuals in the church, as we, the temple of the living God, go and we take the message of the living God to a world that has fallen and that is dwelling in death and that is hopeless without you, Lord, I just pray that we would experience joy and then we would just be addicted to it. We would just want more and more and more and we would not be complacent and that we would be passionate, consumed, Lord, with a desire for your joy and a desire for your glory, whatever the cost may be. No fear, just faithfulness, Lord. Grant this to your church by your grace. Help us to believe and follow through in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.